We've been studying the life of Elijah, and this is the uh, seventh sermon in this series. Uh, It's a very, very dark time in the life of God's people, the Jews. And two weeks ago, when we last looked at this this, uh, passage or these passages about Elijah, we saw him running, um, running before Ahab. Ahab was in a chariot, and Elijah's running before him while the rains are coming and pouring down after three and a half years of drought. And God had extended grace to Ahab, and he allows him to live. And Ahab basically is given the choice of whether to repent and follow the Lord or not. And, but instead, he goes home and reports to Jezebel and blames everything on Elijah. When we come to 1 Kings chapter 19, we have what, what happened next. Beginning in verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. 
and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. As I mentioned, Ahab goes home and blames everything that's happened. Uh, as he tells Jezebel, he blames it all on Elijah. And at this point, just for a moment, Jezebel becomes prominent in the story. And in verse 2, she threatens Elijah. She basically says, tomorrow this day, Martha's time, he'll be like those prophets of Baal that, that he put to death. And so she is intent on seeing that Elijah is killed. I want you to note the limitations of, of knowledge and evidence. I mean, you think about all that Ahab had seen firsthand. Apparently Jezebel had not been there on Mount Carmel, but he could have explained it or others would have told her what had happened and the fire coming down and burning up the stone and everything else. And if you think about that, fire from heaven, God answering prayer, a brief prayer, after all day long the prophets of Baal had pleaded with their God to show himself. And you may think, like some people, if I, if I could see something spectacular, if I could only see something that tangible, faith would not be an issue with me. It would be so easy to believe. And yet we see right here, they saw... He saw, she heard of, amazing things, of a direct answer to prayer, and yet hearts are hard. Their hearts are hard. Jesus said that if we have Moses and the prophets, then that is sufficient. So evidence, you might say, or, or knowledge itself does not save a person because we must not only have the truth, we must have our eyes open to it. And Ahab and Jezebel did not do that. So she issues this threat this promise that she's going to see that Elijah is put to death. And he flees. Verse 3 says Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now I've read a variety of books about Elijah and commentaries, and there's a tendency where we can be rather harsh on Elijah at this point. And we might observe that here was God's man who had demonstrated such faith for the previous three and a half years, and God had provided for him, and he'd seen God raise the widow's son in Zarephath, and he'd come back and seen the contest on Mount Carmel, and, and all that's happened, and, and the rains have come now, and all it takes is one threat, and he cowers, and he runs for his life. Is that really what happened? Did Elijah was, just become a, a coward at this point? I don't think so, uh, and I don't think so as we look deeper. He leaves, and he travels south to a place called Beersheba. And there he leaves his servant. He travels a good distance on, another day's journey into the wilderness. And he comes to this very shady tree, a broom tree. It grows to be about 10 feet high. And he sits down under it. And there he asks God to take his life. Basically, it's, it, I'd be better off dead than alive. Now, that's the reason I don't think he fled out of fear of Jezebel's threat. 
If he was worried about dying, why would he be praying that God would take his life? But he says, take my life or I'm no better than my ancestors. Then verse 5 tells us he lays down and he goes to sleep. What's going on here? I think it's safe to say Elijah is discouraged. Elijah is disillusioned. And we might even say Elijah is depressed. Though that's a broad term. But such discouragement and darkness of the soul can happen to any of God's servants. I think he was very discouraged and there were some contributing factors that are pretty obvious. One is he's exhausted. Think how emotionally drained he would be. All the adrenaline that probably had been there at Mount Carmel. And then the anticipation and the fear and the excitement of all that had happened. You know if you go through something traumatic how you're just exhausted afterwards for a while at least. And then physically, he, previous chapter, he had run 17 miles. He's weary. I don't remember everything that Barbara and I were instructed when we had our premarital counseling decades ago by a pastor at Carl Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, we met with this assistant pastor several times, but I remember, I remember this. In passing, he said, don't, as a couple, once you're married, don't discuss anything serious after 9 p.m. Because after 9 p.m., most people, unless you've got a really strange schedule, you're, you are tired, and you're going to get angry about things. You're going to argue about stuff that if you, if you rest it up, you won't. And we've tried to follow that. So Elijah needed rest. If you're down and discouraged, even depressed, you may need help. You may need help from a doctor. You may need lots of things. You probably definitely need rest. But there's more here. And that is how God responds to Elijah. And I hope you'll find this very encouraging what we see. He sends an angel, a messenger. That's what the word angel means. Is a messenger from God. And he wakes up Elijah. And he says, get up and eat. And he provides him with food and with water and bread, and Elijah eats and drinks, and then he goes back to sleep. Then the, the, the angel comes back a second time, and he does the same thing, wakes him up, get up, for the journey is too difficult for you. And Elijah again eats and drinks, and he travels then some 40 days until he reaches Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, same place, it's 200 miles from where Elijah started off in Jezreel. 2,000 miles. From all indication, he's walking this entire time. Mount Sinai is where the Lord had brought his people after he delivered them from bondage in Egypt. Mount Sinai is where Moses met with God and received the Ten Commandments on the two stone tablets. Mount Sinai was viewed as a holy place. So this is not just a place for Elijah to hide out, he has gone there and God has led them there to meet with him, to meet with God. And verse 9 tells us, the Lord, the word of the Lord came to him. And I love this question in the English Standard Version. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? In our vernacular, it's like a, when a friend says, what are you thinking and feeling? Tell me what's going on. 
and you know they really want to know. And God is saying to him, not, what are you doing here, Elijah? God had brought him there. But what are you thinking? And Elijah pours out his heart. And God invites you and me to pour out our hearts before him, especially when we're down. And he invites you to tell him all your thinking and feeling, and he invites Elijah to do that. And that is what Elijah does. And so in verse 10, though it's repeated later, he, he tells him this, that I have been jealous for the Lord, Elijah says. For you, the God of hosts, the people, they've all forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets. And I, here's the key part, I, only I, I am the only one left that's still faithful to you. That's what he's saying. And now they want to kill me. What do we see here? We see this. Elijah has not lost his faith in God. He's lost his confidence in God. He's disillusioned. He no longer knows what God is up to. Here's why I say this. All along, from all we've seen, going back to chapter 17 and chapter 18, now verse 19, we've seen nothing from Elijah except his desire for the glory of God. Uh, the time he spent with the widow in Zarephath and before the time he spent at the Kareth Ravine, at the brook Cherith, and then he stays there about a year, and then God sends him up to to Jezebel's home area and he stays with this unnamed widow and her son and in the midst of a starving culture all around him and then he goes back we never see anything where Elijah is trying to use this for personal advantage his calling he is fulfilling his role as a prophet and his concern has been about the glory of God so at this moment he's not whining he's not just being self-centered He's concerned about the work of God. He had hoped for more. He had seen the fire fall at Carmel. He had seen the judgment of God on the false prophets. And he had been there and talked to Ahab and then ran before his chariot and known that God was showing grace to Ahab. I, my guess is, my educated guess is, Elijah was hopeful that Ahab would repent. And that God was going to show an obvious great awakening, a revival of God's people. And it didn't happen. And what happens instead? He goes home and he blames everything on Elijah. And Jezebel doesn't repent. And Jezebel says, okay, let's see that Elijah gets killed. And Elijah is disillusioned. Where is your work? Look what you've done. And it appears that I am the only one left who follows you. You ever prayed for someone to come to faith in Christ and the prayers lasted not only weeks, but months and years? And best you know, to this day, the person still hasn't ever professed faith in Christ and maybe seems much more calloused and turned off by the gospel than before? I've seen that. And it, it'll do a number on your faith. If you're not careful, we can become disillusioned like Elijah. We pray and we... We say, Lord, you say that you desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You've told me to ask and to seek and to knock, and I've read the parable about the widow before the judge and the, uh, the neighbor at midnight who demands the three loaves, and you've given me these things, and you've told these stories to pray and that you will answer, and I've done that, and there's no change. And it's not as though we've lost faith in God. We lose confidence. 
we become disappointed. And I think that's what exactly where Elijah was at this point. These are not the words of a coward fleeing from Jezebel. These are the words of a man who's very disillusioned, who had great faith, but whose confidence in God is shaken because he doesn't understand what's going on anymore. So what does God say back to Elijah? How does he respond to him? He reveals himself to him. In verse 11, I won't read the entire passage, but he says, Go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, and the Lord is about to pass by. And he wasn't in the wind, and he wasn't in the earthquake, and he's not in the fire, but he comes in a low whisper. God rarely works through the spectacular. As much as we want to see it, and it's exciting, and sometimes we see real tangible things happen that we know only God brought that apart, brought that about. Normally, that's not the way He works. He uses His Word. He uses the Scriptures. And here was Elijah, the messenger of God, and now God's Word is ministering the message to the messenger. So what does God use? He uses his word, his simple word, the message of the Bible, taught and preached. All scripture, the Bible says, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that's normally what he uses to encourage us and to change hearts. God speaks through his word. I got a message last week after the services on Sunday from a a person going through a, a very, very difficult time in another state. And he wrote and said, how he had tuned in online. He may be watching right now. And he said how much Elliot's sermon, how God had used that in a mighty way in his life. And he sent me that. I sent it to Elliot as well. What? Spectacular? Flashy? No. His simple word. And God then enlightens his mind. When, when we become discouraged, disillusioned, even depressed, our perspective becomes warped. Normally, there's an absence of hope, and it's incredibly negative. And he says this. Uh, he, he says, I'm the only one. And it sounds like us when we get really down and we think, well, you know, no, what difference do I make? No one loves me. No one appreciates me. No one knows what I do. I put in all this effort for nothing. No one around here is committed to Christ. God, where are you? You know what those are? Those are overstatements, and they are exaggerations. Now, they're real, and I don't doubt for a moment that Elijah really felt that way, but an outside observer could say, Elijah, that's not really the case. I don't doubt you believe it, Elijah, but that's not reality. What you are saying is a warped perspective. So how does God deal with him? He enlightens his mind. He says, look at my might. Remember my message. And Elijah, like us, when we are really discouraged, he needed God's perspective. And that's what we need when we are really down. So in conclusion, we see that that God recommissions Elijah. God tells Elijah to go back the way he had come. Go to the desert of Damascus. Anoint Hazael, then go and anoint Jehu. And then uh, anoint Elisha, who will succeed you as the prophet. And they will carry out judgment. Oh, and by the way, Elijah, how you're saying you're the only one, 
I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone, Elijah. Not by any stretch of the imagination. What's God doing with Elijah at this very moment? One, he's, he's letting Elijah know that he is carrying out his plans. Even though Elijah doesn't realize it, God was at work mightily in a lot of other lives. I think when, when we are just, <clears throat> when we go through dark times, what I entitled here spiritual depression, going back to what Martin Lloyd-Jones called it, and we kind of end up where Elijah was, maybe disillusioned, and we haven't lost our faith, but we're just totally puzzled as to what God is doing, and, and it lasts for a while, then uh, we need to think about God's at, at work in the world, and that's where reading missionary biographies and things like that kind of get you out of your own self, and you see what God's doing. If you think that, that your life, you, right now, your perspective, that what we're told is, is one of maybe 7.3 billion people alive right now, right this moment, 7 billion, and God is at work in every life, and, and moving in nations, and I, what we know is so little of what's happening in the world, and it comes from certain perspectives, and other things are completely ignored, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so he's letting Elijah know, my plan is a lot bigger than you, Elijah. So I want you to go to anoint this person as king. I'm going to be working there. I'm going to anoint that one as king in the northern kingdom. I'm going to anoint Elisha as your successor. Oh, and like I said, now i got 7,000 others. He's also letting know that, that it will outlive Elijah, that God's plan is a lot bigger than you and me. And we often want to know, uh, well, why is this happening in my life? Well, maybe for the benefit of your great-great-grandchildren. Who knows? Maybe we'll know in heaven, but God is at work through all of that. Third, he's also including Elijah in it. And this is what I love. To me, this is the, this is the, the pearl in the crown of the story. <laughs> he basically says to Elijah, now that's what I'm doing. Now get up and get going. We don't find a rebuke here toward Elijah. We don't see anything directed toward uh, his overstatements except the truth. We don't see that now confess your sins of, of discouragement and all that. He just says, he recommissions him. He said, all right, he's had rest now. He's traveled, he's had food. Now here's what I want you to do, Elijah. I want you to get up and go. And sometimes that's what we need. And I'm certainly not simplistic about a lot of these things, but sometimes when we're disillusioned, it's, the thing to do is put our hand back to the plow and say, I can't come up with all the answers. I don't know, and I'm never going to get them in this life. But I want to be faithful and keep following Christ. So let me ask you, if you've been away from the Lord, maybe the words disillusioned or discouraged or even depressed spiritually might apply, then humble yourself. Repent. Pray. But then get up and get back in service. Don't wait until you have served some type of self-imposed penance, trying to make yourself feel good enough or worthy enough for God to use you. Do it now. Has the word of the, the Lord come to you as your trust in Christ, as your, as your Savior and as your King? Act on that. Are you allowing God's word to lead you rather than your own discouragement to lead you? Trust in him uh, and his word.
Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful that you call us to be a part of your eternal work of drawing to yourself a forever family through faith in Christ. And it is so easy, as we even see with the parable of the sower, that the concerns of this world, which may not be necessarily material things, but just worrying about things around us all the time, or not seeing the results we'd like to see in your church or in evangelism or in our personal ministry. And yet we pray that, that we would see that your perspective is so much bigger than ours and you are doing a lot of things that we do not know of. And by faith, we ask that we would walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.